Coming back to 1 John, I'm, I'm enjoying 1 John more than I've ever enjoyed 1 John before. You know, when the Apostle John writes, whether it's in his Gospels or whether it's here in his letter, he always states his purpose very clearly, usually at the end. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31, he writes, "...but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah." the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The gospel was written to bring people to an understanding of who Jesus is and what they can do to receive eternal life. Here in his letter to the churches, he wants those who have now received that new life, where out of the gospel we've received the new life, to know that they know that they know that they have the new life and can be certain about it, and then to live accordingly. In chapter 5, of uh, verse 13 of 1 John, he says, I write these things to you who believe. That's why I mentioned earlier in the service, I, I, everything that we're doing today, actually all through this letter, everything needs to be personal. He's writing to us personally. I write to these to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants to give us confidence that we're saved. That's his overarching purpose. But then he's got a secondary purpose, and we actually saw that in chapter 1, verse 4. We write this, he says, to make our joy complete. But there's no way we can have that complete joy if we're not sure of our spiritual condition in the first place. And so in order to provide confidence in that, and that consequent joy, John in this epistle lays out proofs. He lays out evidences or tests, if you will, by which one can measure their true condition. And they're fairly easy to distinguish. And they're really there are really doctrinal tests and there are moral tests tests that John lays out, and we're going to be seeing those kind of weave through these five chapters of his letter as we go through. The doctrinal tests basically have to do with two things. Our, our view of Christ, we looked a little bit at that last, last week in chapter 1, or a couple weeks ago in chapter 1, uh, Jesus being life. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, we're going to see that he focuses on the deity of Christ, who Jesus is. So our view of Christ the second doctrinal test is our view of self. How do we see ourselves? And that has to do with our sin, our original depravity. Uh, chapter 1 was all about if, if you say you don't sin, you're lying. We have to be honest about our self. There are also those tests that are moral tests. Uh, you can say spiritual tests, but moral tests. The verification of our salvation is not by what we believe, but how we behave how we conduct ourselves. And there are two primary tests in that category that he points out. One is obedience, and we talked about that last week in verses 3 through 5, having to do with keeping his commandments because they are now written on our hearts. And this morning we come to verse 7, which is the second moral test that he uh, places, and that is love. That is love. But love, while it's only one of two tests, is actually the supreme one. Because love is the greatest commandment, and our obedience stems from that love. El love is elevated above everything else in Scripture. Loving God is elevated above everything else in terms of our personal relationship with God. 
and loving one another is elevated above everything else in our relationships with others or each other. So love is the supreme commandment and therefore becomes from the behavioral side, from the side of the moral test, the supreme test of our salvation. Listen to our text for this morning as John writes, starting in 1 John 2, verses 7 to 11. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old commandment is a message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Now John reintroduces the theme of light and darkness that we looked at in chapter 1. Light represents eternal life, and darkness represents eternal death. And whether one is in the light, possessing eternal life, or in the darkness, sentenced to eternal death, is made clear in the matter of loving. Interestingly, it's only in verse 10 that love is actually mentioned once, that word. But it's very clear that love is a theme of this whole section. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light And who is light? Well, Jesus, we know that. Last week we talked about living in Jesus. Here we are are to live in the light, one in the the same. You can't live in the light without living in Jesus, abiding in Jesus. And the way that shows up is in our love. And that's the key moral test, the key behavioral test for our salvation. Now, in our passage, John looks at love as an old commandment, love as a new commandment, and love as a way of life. Those are going to be our three main points this morning as we go through this section. Let's start by looking at love as an old commandment. In verse 7, he says, Dear friends, John loves using that term, dear friends, uh, for brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking to Christians. And in this context, it actually refers to fellow believers from the same Father, all united together with one another in love. Dear friends, he says, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. I'm not writing about something that you've never heard of before. I'm not trying to invent something brand new here, he's saying. He's, he, said, he said it before in verse 1 of chapter 1. Remember that which was from the beginning. That's how he starts out. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Not only was the message of Jesus being life from the beginning, but his command to love, John says here in verse 7, has been around since the very beginning. It was first stated in Deuteronomy. You remember that in chapter 6. And Jesus basically quotes almost word for word the passage in Deuteronomy when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he added what was already stated in Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's part of the law that's been around since the very, very beginning. 
And what he's getting at is that Christianity is not just a philosophy, not just a set of beliefs with no action. There are a lot of people in the world that have their own philosophy and they love to expound on it. But then you look at their lives and the way they live kind of betrays them. They don't live what they say they believe. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians in churches all around that are the same way. And John had them in his day. And we've got them in our day as well. You see, if you're a Christian, it's not like just a philosophy. You can't believe one thing. Say, yes, I believe that, and then live any, other, any way you want to. That's not how Christians live. If, you're really, if you've really been changed, if you've really been regenerated, if you've really been transformed, two things are going to be true about your life. One is you're going to love and obey God. And two, you're going to love your, your fellow Christians. You're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's John's theme all the way through these five chapters of this letter. Now listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. This is how we know, again, certainty. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. He's very strong, black and white for him. Anyone who does not do what is right or does not practice righteousness is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brothers and sisters. And there he combines those two moral tests of obedience to the Word of God and loving one another together. He does that all the way through his letters. Over in 2 John even, verse 6, he says, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. There again, he links the idea of loving God and obeying God together. They are inseparable So keeping commandments and loving sum up the character qualities of a person who has been transformed. We are to love one another. Even the Apostle Paul builds on this in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 8. Listen, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And then he goes back to what the law stated, Old Testament. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in the one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, how does that exactly work? Well, you know, you, you can say, don't commit adultery. But if you truly love your wife, you're not going to commit adultery. If you truly love your neighbor, you're not going to commit um, adultery. You're not going to commit adultery against your wife with your neighbor's wife. It's a question of love. The Old Testament says you shall not murder, but you're not going to murder somebody that you love. You're not going to steal from somebody you love. You're not going to covet from somebody you love. We could go on and on, even add some of those acts of sinful nature that Paul delineates in Ephesians 5. You're not going to hate, cause discord, be jealous, have fits of rage, selfish ambition, or cause dissensions and factions if you truly love your fellow believer, brothers and sisters. Paul says love is the fulfillment of the whole law. That's what Jesus says. There are un, there, there's an inseparable, inseparable excuse me, link between loving your neighbor and obeying God. But love sums it all up. When I love, I just don't do those things. That desire should not be in my heart any longer. Those things are done usually in the absence of love. 
So the message of love is truly embedded in the Old Testament. That's what John is referring to when he says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. It's been around for centuries, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is a message you have heard. But not only has this command been there since the beginning of time, but I think John is also referring to a a, a little bit more personal aspect of this, referring to the fact that since the beginning of their own faith in Jesus Christ, when Paul started the church there in Ephesus, they've heard this command. I'm sure Paul preached this when he, he was there. It's nothing new from what they've already heard, even from Paul. But they're being pulled away from the truth of this by the philosophers of the day, by the false teachers within their midst. And that's one main reason that John is so strong writing this letter. And the same thing happens today. People say we shouldn't want anything legalistic in the gospel. Just make everything pure grace and nothing else. Don't be telling people they need to live a righteous life and obey the Word of God. Don't be telling people they have to do something like love your brothers and sisters in Christ, or you'll be cluttering up grace with some kind of effort on our part. It's all grace. Apparently, the apostles didn't feel that way, and John certainly didn't, didn't. You see, following Christ comes at a cost. Scripture tells us that the gate is narrow, and so is the way that we are to walk. It's kind of ironic that telling a Christian that they're being narrow-minded tends to be thought of as a very negative, derogatory, insulting thing. But in actuality, we should take that as a compliment. We are to be narrow-minded on the narrow path. So the command to love is an old command, nothing they haven't heard before. But then in verse 8, it seems like he contradicts his statement. When he talks about love as a new commandment, yet I am writing you a new commandment. So, which is it, John? Old or is it new? John says it's both. It's both. Yeah, but if it's as old as the hills, you know, it's just been around way back in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments written about 3,500 years ago. What about this command could possibly be new? Well, John explains that. First of all, he, the, the, the word for new he's using, it's a sense that there's a freshness about it. There's something new here. There's a freshness about, about this command that it was different from before. There's something new uh, to make it more meaningful now. And he says, yet I am writing you a new command, and this, this, he says, is how it's new. Its truth is seen in him, referring to Jesus Christ, Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So let's parse this out a little bit to see if we understand what John is saying. First of all, what what does it mean to say its truth is seen in him? He's saying Christ is what makes it new. The newness of it is truly manifested in Jesus Christ. Never before, even though God said way back in the Old Testament, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, which really fulfilled the whole second half of the Ten Commandments, never before has that love been so clearly manifested, so uh, seen in such perfection as it is in Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a level of understanding of the perfection of that love which was never able to have been understood previously until it was personified, till it was manifested, till we are able to see it in Jesus Christ. 
Never has a world seen this perfect love in action until Jesus showed it to them. See, the newness isn't in the essential command. The newness is in the manifestation of His perfect glory in the person of Jesus Christ. This is actually depicted back in the Gospel of John in chapter 13, in John's account of the upper room. Remember the scene, the feast of the Passover was coming, Jesus and the disciples were there in the upper room, Judas is going to betray him, and, and he's going to be arrested and executed at the Passover. And it says in verse 1 of John 13, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then he writes this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The word translated end can refer to a number of things. It can refer to the end of life. It can refer to the uttermost. It can refer to eternity. It can be referred to love, which is perfected. Love God, Christ loved them perfectly. So, so which is it? It's all of them. It's all of them. He was a divine perfection of love that never ends, goes on all the way to the end of eternity. For God so loved the world. That's the, that all-encompassing love of His. What was the purpose of that love? That we would have eternal life. goes all the way to eternity. In Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, same kind of thing, right? But because of His great love for us, that overwhelming Complete love. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And to then to demonstrate his love to his disciples, he gave them all kinds of promises. He was going to send the Holy Spirit to them. If they ever had anything that they needed, um, they, all they had to do was pray and ask, and he'd provide it. And that the Spirit is going to come and lead them into all truth and that His peace was going to be with them and that He's going to go and prepare a place for them and when He comes back, He's going to take them to be with Him. And in the meantime, He's going to do things through them the likes of which they've never seen before. It's all coming out of His love for them. He loved them absolutely to perfection. John says the truth of this love is seen in Him. That love came from within. It wasn't because of all these guys are so wonderful and nice and lovable that Jesus decided he was going to love them. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that uh, two of his disciples were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. He knew as well that Judas was about to betray him. That very night, he knew too that Peter, the strong leader of the group, was going to deny him three times. He knew that his own people to whom he had come were going to reject him and crucify him. And yet while hanging on the cross, he looked down on all those horrible people and with a heart of love and compassion said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's the newness of that command of love. It comes from within Him. It's not something exterior that we try to do. That was the Old Testament, the law given that they had to try to keep. And as wonderful of a law that was, it was only a shadow of the reality to come. And Christ is not the shadow. He is a reality. He is a substance. And so when Christ comes, who God is becomes manifest to us in an absolutely new and amazing way. 
That's what John means here. He says that this is new in the sense that it's seen in the wonder of its perfection in Jesus Christ. But the truth of love is not only new in him or manifest in him. Look at verse 8 again. It's truth, he says, is seen in him and in you. And in you. You know, it's so easy to read over that quickly and glibly and not really stop and think about that. That's actually an amazing statement. Not only is there a newness to the command to love because it's manifestation in Christ, but there's a newness to this love, there's a freshness to this love because now it's manifested in us. It's from within and not from without. It's written on our hearts. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that no one else in the world, in other religious systems, can love like we can love? No one. They cannot. That's just an amazing realization of what it means to be a new creation in Christ. The manifestation of our love is something new, something incredibly wonderful that only comes from God. Jesus said in that, on that same night in the upper room in John 14, verse 16, He said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another counselor to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Then He goes on to say in verse 20, On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, you are in me, I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. (laughs) That neat verse. In you, John says, he's in you, and if he's in you, that his love ought to be manifested in you as well. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 13 the way we did earlier this morning. Is that love manifested in us? Manifested to everyone? To all of our brothers and sisters? John says when he gives you his Holy Spirit, you're going to be all wrapped up in this love. Loving him, loving the Father, loving one another. He says that's the evidence. If that's happening, you've, you can be absolutely certain of your salvation because a change has takes place. See, that, that's part of what happens when we become a Christian. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, and the fruit of the Spirit then is manifested. The Holy Spirit takes up residence. And according to Galatians 5.22, what's the first fruit of the Spirit? That's what we're talking about, right? It's love. It is love. Paul says in Romans 5.5, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. And please remember the kind of love that he's talking about is this agape, unconditional love. Only comes from God. It's not so much the love that we give toward God as it is the love that God gives us and then we can give it to each other and back to God. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 a minute. Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Saying this kind of love is not normal. It surpasses knowledge. 
but it should be manifested in us. And if it's not, Houston, we got a problem. He's saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Now as, as to love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Isn't that interesting? It's something that is taught by God. In our relationship with Him, as we're learning more about Him, He teaches us. If you're struggling to love someone in the church, or even maybe even like them, John says, ask God. He'll teach you. Our prayer so often is, God, change that person so I can like them. And God says, no, 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 <laughs> that's not how it works. He says, you need to ask me to change you because there's a love problem in your heart. John says, look, I'm not telling you anything new. It's something very old. But there's a newness to it. And the newness is that you, uh, you've seen it in its perfection in the incarnate Christ. And another aspect of the newness is that it's now in you. You should be seeing that evidence bubbling up in yourself. Then he says in verse, the end of verse 8, Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. Why? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, it's pretty, pretty obvious who the true light is, right? We've talked about that. Um, it's Jesus. I am the light of the world. He's very clear about that. And John says the true light has already been shining. The new capacity for love, this fresh dimension of love, this deposit of love in our life is an expression of that light and is only possible and real because the light has already been shining. Why? Because Christ has come and he's inaugurated a new day. He inaugurated the kingdom of light when he entered the world. And the kingdom of light is dispelling, is dispelling the darkness. Sometimes it seems like darkness is getting a a huge hold, right? Darkness is is kind of dispelling the light. And maybe it's because the light in us that is manifested in love is not shining as it ought to be. The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Think about that a minute. Centuries and centuries, millennia and millennia of darkness. And then the light dawns 2,000 years ago. For now the light and the darkness overlap. But the darkness is fading and the light is moving towards that great and glorious shining return of Jesus Christ. When he established his kingdom of light on the earth and the whole earth is filled with the shining Shekinah glory of God. So an old commandment and a new commandment. Love coming from within, which leads us to the third point. Love needs to be a way of life. This isn't just philosophy. This isn't just ideology. This is where the rubber meets the road. You see, our faith has to be practical. It has to be useful. It has to be put into practice or it's no faith at all. Starting in verse 9, John just gives some very plain, flat-out, black-and-white, clear illustrations. And it's here where the principle is applied. The test is given to the one who claims to be a Christian. Here's the test. Anyone who claims to be in the light, anyone who claims to be a Christian, anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ, but hates or dislikes, or detests, or can't stand, or doesn't want to like, a brother or sister is still in the darkness. That's scary. Because I've seen a lot of that in churches. If you hate, John says, you're not in the kingdom. Well, I I don't hate, hate them. I just can't stand them. 
semantics, right? Folks, if you don't see people the way God sees them, if you don't love people the way God loves them, particularly people within the church body, then He's not in control of our lives and our heart. You see, love proves everything when connected to sound doctrine. We have to have it all together. But it shouldn't even stop within the church body. Our hearts are to love, to go out to even those who don't know the Lord. And it should be enough to break our hearts for their lostness. We often point to our deeds. Look at all I do for God. Look what I do in the church. Look how often I'm at church. Look at the giftings that I manifest. Listen to my wisdom. Listen to my knowledge. Earlier this morning, we read 1 Corinthians 13 together, and Paul starts off there. It says, See, uh, if, excuse me, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Folks, these giftings have been overrated by the church. Listen carefully. They've been overrated in the sense that they have been rated higher than love. Do you realize what Paul, and by extension John, is saying here? The gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, the gift of knowledge, and yes, even the gift of faith to move mountains. None of these are the evidence or the proof of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul says all that's going to pass away. He says that in that same chapter. All of those things are going to pass away. The evidence of the filling of the Spirit, folks, is love. God's love. God's unconditional agape love. Without it, all these other things become nothing, become useless, become noise, as Paul says. Did you know that Satan can duplicate the gifts of the Spirit? Shouldn't be shocked by that. Even the gift of tongues, of prophecy, of knowledge, I've seen it, I've heard it. That's why Paul says, test the spirits. Make sure the gift is actually from the Holy Spirit. But do you know what Satan cannot duplicate? God's love, God's unconditional agape love. Satan cannot duplicate that. What John is telling us here is that if you're a true Christian, it's going to show up in your love. It may not yet be perfected quite like Christ is or was, but it ought to be the pattern. It ought to be the direction of our life. We're going to have a heart of love for those around us, not a heart of hatred or dislike or scorn or derision or disdain. John is absolutely black and white. If that kind of love is not there, we've got an issue with God, not with another person. It means no change has happened and no work of God is in the process in your heart. And the contrast comes in verse 10. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. That's the positive side of that. It's wonderful. And that's certainly reasonable, right? There's, no, uh, there's nothing to make them stumble if, if, uh, if, if you've got love like that and there's light. I mean, that's why we have light bulbs, right? We turn on lights so we don't stumble over things. If we're walking in the light, we're not going to trip over Things. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 165, says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. 
Great verse. When we love and obey the law of God, when we express the love of God and the love of Christ to others, we're walking in the light and we're not going to stumble. We're not going to fall. What does that mean? Well, stumbling in Scripture always, is always referring to sin. In this context, when, when he's saying that if you love people, you're not going to stumble into sin against them, which again covers the second half of those Ten Commandments. You're not going to commit adultery against them. You're not going to commit murder. You're not going to steal. You're not going to lie. You're not going to covet. If you love people, you don't sin against them. Paul adds a whole list that comes from an unloving heart. He calls them the acts of the sinful nature. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, and unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth, which would include gossip, bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. All of that should be gone. But you know, when we have those attitudes, when we have those feelings, when we have those words, what does that do? Paul says it grieves the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit did that for you. How are you allowing this to happen? Why does it grieve Him? Because He's living in us. And He has given us this tremendous gift of love to fill us and to transform us. And if we're acting out in that old sinful nature way, He's experiencing it because He's living in us. And it's almost like a slap in the face for what He's done for us. It grieves Him. So John says, if you're a true Christian, you're going to love people and you're not going to sin against them as a pattern of life. And even though we don't do that perfectly, there should be a sense of terrible remorse when we fail to love as we ought to love. So the contrast is pretty clear, light and darkness. We talked about the new covenant last week, the law of God written on our hearts. That's what John is talking about here. There's a new commandment to love written on our hearts so much better and the Old Commandments written on a tablet of stone. And that's how we are supposed to live. Live by that new love emanating from within. Now, I hate ending on a negative note, but John does here in this passage. Let's take a look at the last part. It's so easy, you know, to fall back into those old habits that used to be a part of our sinful nature, isn't it? Satan loves to work at that. I mean, the whole world is saying that it's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about the individual. I deserve, right? I deserve. We need to love ourselves. We're worth it. You're number one. And if you don't agree with me, then I can't be friends with you. If you don't agree with me, I actually don't like you. I despise you. I, I even hate you. And we begin to get sucked into the world's way of thinking. And John says, no, that's the wrong way of thinking. Verse 11, but anyone who hates a brother or sister, and that could be anything from indifference, no care being shown, no care, to disdain, to outright hatred. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Such a sad, sad state of affairs. But it can be turned around. Ask God to bring the change. It's something taught by God. Remember, we, we talked about that earlier. It's something effectuated by the Holy Spirit. Let me close with this. If we look back to the instance of Jesus once, once again, washing the feet of his disciples back in John 13. After washing the feet, there's a little dialogue with Peter. 
And then there's some teaching from the Lord himself. And a couple of verses stood out to me, verses 34 and 35. Now, you remember how John, in in our passage this morning, said it's an old commandment, but there's a newness to us, that there's a freshness. Jesus says the same thing. It's probably where John got his insight, other than the Holy Spirit, um, to make that interesting and surprising contrast. In verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. Now, that's not actually the new part. I mean, that's quoted from Old Testament, right? That's, That's the old. They already heard that. Love one another, and here's the new part, as I have loved you, so you must, you must love one another. We have no choice. We have no choice, folks. Whether we like it or not, we have to love one another. By this, Jesus said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So you may ask, well, how exactly had he loved them? All you have to do is look at his three years of ministry, meeting every need they had, providing food for them, teaching them, providing them forgiveness and grace and and mercy and patience and everything else that he provided. It means even getting down on his knees and becoming a servant before them and washing their dirty feet, even while they were arguing about who is going to be the greatest. So this is the newness of it. It's never been seen like this before. And we think, when we think about loving each other, you know, we, we understand the idea, we understand the concept of loving, but never before have we seen the reality of that agape loving until we see it in Jesus Christ. So John says, if you love like that, you'll pass the test. You'll pass the test and you will know. Do you know? Look at our, we need to look at our own hearts. Do we pass the doctrinal test? I trust we do. Do you believe in the deity of Christ? Do you understand your own depravity, your, your own sinfulness? And how are, we, how are we doing on this moral test aspect, our behavior? Are we desiring and longing to obey God's word? And do we agape love one another? That's how we know. That's how we know we're a Christian. And by that love, not only do we know, but by that love, the people who see us, the people who watch us will know. That's the heart and soul of our Christian testimony, folks. That's the foundation on which the gospel becomes believable. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, old song, taken right out of 1 John. Love one another. For God is love. He who loves is born of God and knows God. Father, this morning, I thank you for the one and only love that only you can give. And I thank you that you called us. I thank you that you put people in our path, whether it was recent, whether it was way back when we were younger, that shared this wonderful love of Jesus Christ, this agape, unconditional love for us who are sinners, who don't deserve it, who are destined for wrath because of our disobedience and sinfulness. But you loved us. You sent your Son to die for us. Father, I pray that we would not take that for granted. 
you have told us that we are to be light as Jesus. In, light. in fact, you call us the light. You are the light. If we are the light, we need to be having that love and expressing that love, certainly to one another. That shouldn't, there should never be a, a fighting and inviting and, and, and tearing down within, a, a, within any church body. But Father, not only are we to love one another, but we are to look out beyond and love those that are around us as well, because you do. Do something new in our life. Transform that whole aspect of love and let our lives be led by that love of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.